Welcome to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with your host, Leo Flowers. I am Leo Flowers. Today's guest is Richard Brockman, MD, who is a clinical professor in the Department of Psychiatry at Columbia University and a visiting professor in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Namibia. He is the author of Life After Death, which tells the story of a boy who died and of a man who survived when the boy and the man are one and the same. Dr. Brockman found his mother's body, and this story is a simple narrative of how his childhood ended. Welcome to the episode, Dr. Brockman. Thank you for being here, brother. Leo, thank you very, very much. I am um, really looking forward to this hour or however much time we have together. I really want to hop right into this because I'm so fascinated, one, by your story and your background and, and being a psychiatrist uh, who is interested in epigenetics and uh, biology, but also as a person who you found your mom's body when she ended her life. What was your understanding? Now, let me rephrase this. What did you need? at the time that you found your mom's body versus what you received? Well, I don't know. There is no simple answer. There's no direct answer to that question. What did I need and what did I get? Um, because overwhelming trauma and that in my mind, is defined by a situation over which you have no control. Um, that's any other traumatic situation. I mean, you can be in a war, you can be a fireman, you can be a soldier, you can be, you name it. And it's not overwhelming because you feel a sense of control. It's when you lose control. And, and are biologically, psychologically and biologically aware that you have no control over what happens next. You have no control over life or death. You have no control over time anymore. Everything collapses and your the story collapses, but also the, bio, the biology changes going from controlled trauma to uncontrolled trauma. So again, p policemen, surgeons, firemen, uh, you, you name it, and anybody can be in a controlled traumatic situation where it's dangerous, it's frightening, but they haven't lost the sense of control. It's losing sense of control drastically changes the neurochemistry. And that was my situation when I saw my mother dead. And you don't fully integrate the way one normally would in terms of integration. Your senses don't integrate in a normal way. They integrate in, in either the sense of I have to do something very, very quickly or I'm going to die, or you totally lose control over any possible action and you become almost, well, pa sometimes paralyzed with fear. And there's a whole, there's a biology of that. It's not just the 
paralyzed with fear is a nice sort of ex expression or not, I don't know about nice expression, but it's an expression, but it's, it's more than an expression. There's a biology or, I mean, like mice, for example, get paralyzed with fear when they sense the cat is close and it can't escape. It literally, the mouse will freeze. Um, and those of us who are, find ourselves in that situation pretty much freeze, at least for a certain period of time. And if you survive, um, then sometimes you can act up, you know, up to a point, depending on what the situation is. So um, I was in that situation of both being overwhelmed traumatically, uh, paralyzed with, unable to move, unable to really act, and then kind of just acting in that I just ran away. Uh, but in terms of effective action, tra traumatic situations, there is no chance for traumatic, uh, uncontrolled trauma. You don't have the possibility of effective coordinated action. If you did, then it wouldn't be uncontrolled fear. I noticed that you said you ran away from and not towards to someone. I would imagine if I found my mom's body, I would have, you know, maybe have run to my father or to a neighbor's or to a friend. Did you run to someone or did you have a clubhouse? No, I, I ran to the, the neighbor. I, I knew there was no one else in the house. I mean, because no one ever is at a, in the house when I get home from school, other than my mom. So I knew that she was the only one there. And on some level, I knew that something really, really bad had happened. And on some level, I knew that she was dead. And I, the in the book, my actions sort of are, they're separated in time because it took me a while to put back together, and, and I don't mean a few minutes or a few hours, but a few decades almost to put back together what I saw, what I witnessed, what I even what I remembered, what I had done um, in that moment. So, I mean, I could condense it all, but it really took me <laughs> about fifteen or twenty years to piece it all together. But at, in that moment, I was frozen for a period of time. Then, then some things I did that I really didn't remember for a long, long time, and it was it was winter time, and I ran through the snow to my our neighbor's house, who was also a caretaker. To I mean, a, a woman who provided a great deal of care, not, not a caretaker, but a woman who provided a great deal of care to me d during my mother's illness, um, and I ran to her house, sort of. It's just knowing, I guess, that she would be there. I mean, I had to find someone that was an adult. I just, there was no way I was able to deal with this as a seven-year-old boy. You know, I, I really want to dig into some of the history of your mother and then also then coming back to your story. And the reason why, you know, when we look at research on um, when someone ends their life and then we read about or hear about someone ending their life they say 
that suicide spike. And my theory is that the, the spike happens because not because necessarily of the suicide, but because we don't have enough understanding as to why. Uh, for instance, if my friends get start getting married, then all of a sudden I might say, hey, babe, we should get married because my friends are getting married. But if I understand that my friends are getting married because they got their you know, wives pregnant or their girlfriends pregnant, well, I'm going to be like, well, you're not pregnant. You know, now my understanding of why they're getting married may deter me from, uh, you know, getting married. And I think the same thing happens with suicide, where if we have a deeper understanding of the person's background and history, then there's a moment where hopefully our prefrontal cortex kicks in and says, oh, there were options here, or there, there was another way, or this didn't have to happen, or, I, or at least I have uh, other options besides what this person had, or I didn't go through that. Um, and what, so when you look at your mom's family history, was there anything in the fa in her family history that served as a precursor up to this moment? Um, it's interesting that you mentioned the prefrontal cortex, um, which is a big player in free choice and, and the capacity to make a choice. Um, which is why a lot of the um, epidemics, if you will, of suicide often are amongst adolescents. And one, it's like if if there's a if it, if a sixteen year old commits suicide, there's a, a for good reason. There's a concern amongst the teachers or amongst parents about their students or their children because it, it there is that. Uh, sort of group effect, if you will, in in when the prefrontal in, in adolescence, when there's group mentality and um, the, the the bonding of the group, and, and the, the prefrontal cortex is not fully online. Um, I think my mother's prefrontal cortex was offline because she had significant biological illness, and there's there was no question about that then or now. Um, she had bipolar depression. And bipolar depression went untreated. And it when when she was first ill and then around the time of her pregnancy with me, and then when she committed suicide, I mean there were, so there are three separate episodes of, of significant depression. Um there what really the treatment wasn't really there. I mean, lithium is kind of the the go-to pharmacology now, and there are other there are other medications that also are also used. But but lithium, when she was at her worst, really, it it it's it was known, but it wasn't used that much, and it, it's it wasn't it wasn't like just everyday knowledge that bipolar you know bipolar disorder and lithium go together as a treatment. So. She had significant bipolar depression, and the suicide rate in bipolar depression is 15%, uh, untreated is 15%, which that's one in eight. That's like, whoa, that's really a bad illness. You are very sick. And it's less, 
the, the, the determinants are really very in, in bipolar depression are rarely um, related to events of the day, you know, like I bet on the third horse at Hialeah and I didn't win or, or something like that. Um, but really they're biologically driven. And she had a very identified, identifiable biological illness with a high percentage of suicide. Um, and indeed, that's what happened. So when we're looking at bipolar depression, are we talking about like not enough GABA, not enough DA, 5-HT? Like what what um, biologically are we talking here? Too much of what and too little of what? And... I think uh, bipolar depression is probably the least understood. Well, that and schizophrenia. And again, exactly what schizophrenia is, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that's known either. But it's not it's not entirely clear just what is wrong with bipolar depression. And even the drugs that treat it, like uh, Depakote or lithium um, or some of the anti Abilify, I mean, all those drugs, it's not really clear just what it is that we're, we're treating. Um, and, and why it works. And a lot of these drugs were discovered when the, the, the researchers were looking for something else. And then they said, huh, this, I mean, they were looking for, when, when the drugs for schizophrenia, like Thorazine was first discovered, they were looking for an antihistamine. And they said, huh, these people still have, hives and rashes, but they're not so crazy. Um, they're not talking to, you know, to, to people that aren't there anymore or, or hearing them. And it was, that's how Thorazine got discovered. And it's still, I mean, there's pieces that are understood, but it's not clearly understood. I mean, with unipolar depression, yes, dopamine, uh, serotonin, noradrenaline, there, there seem to be clearly a part of straight depression but bipolar depression seems to be in a world that's different and it's not again entirely clear it's not even clear why lithium works um, but it works were there any early life adversities your mom went through you know what was there any uh traumatic experiences for her that you became aware of whether it was moving or divorce or um, as far as I know, and that's a terrific question, as far as I know, there weren't. Um, she, her, her, she married my father, and it was a, a, a good marriage. Um, I mean, in the book, I talk about she, she was, she was a very beautiful woman, and her, her younger sister, my aunt Fran was not a beautiful woman. There was a tremendous amount of envy that my aunt had towards my mother. And my aunt, <laughs> for reasons that I really never fully understood other than perhaps something to do with envy, would tell me all these stories. I mean, this is when I was like five years old, six years old, my mother was still alive. And she would tell me all these kind of somewhat mean stories about my mother, about some lover that she had. And I, 
I'm not 100% sure whether she was, this was honest or whether it was, you know, a flirtation at a dance that was ended at, at that or whether it was a lover. I, I don't know. And it didn't sound particularly traumatic in me. It, it sounded like she had a good time at a dance and maybe she had a lover, maybe she didn't. I don't know. But it wasn't some horrific situation of you know, betrayal or something like that. Um, and I think she had a relatively healthy, happy childhood. I mean, she was successful at school. And, um, in, in, and in the world that she lived in, it was a small community in, in a part of Brooklyn that kind of Brooklyn back then, it's very different from what Brooklyn is now. I mean, there were communities and they were, they were sort of defined communities, whether it was religion or race or language or country of origin or whatever it was. It was sort of like these small little enclaves here and there. And they, they lived in this small enclave and it was the Sheepshead Bay section of Brooklyn, which was kind of isolated, actually geographically isolated because a little peninsula in in you know in South Brooklyn and yeah I don't I think she it was a it was a homogeneous kind of calm community so I don't really know that she had any trauma that you could say uh, you know that this did something or that did something um, I think her genes did something and I don't know of mental illness in any of her siblings, and there were others, there were three other siblings. And I, I knew her, my grandparents, her mother and father, and they were both quite elderly. Um, and they were seemingly quite healthy also, at least in terms of mental illness. So I don't think there was, um, you know, a, a strong line of bipolar illness in the family. Yeah, were there any recent stressors at the time for her? That, stressors? That she, yeah, for her, that at the time that you can recall? No. I mean, it was, well, it was, you know, maybe 10 years after World War II, but so, but I don't think that was a major stressor for her. I mean, my father was in the served in the military, but he wasn't sent overseas. So, I mean, he was kind of past the age where you were sent overseas. Um, so it, it wasn't particularly, that even that wasn't particularly traumatic. Um, so I don't think so. And, and again, bipolar illness is, um, sometimes a stressor pushes the genetic load so that it, it manifests itself and like, People who are identical twins, you know, a pair of people who are identical twins who have bipolar illness, it's not 100% penetrance. It's not as if if one has it, therefore both will. Um, and, you know, if they're, if they're identical twins, they have identical D DNA. So you would think if one would have it, if it was purely genetic, then if one would have it, they both would have it. But it, there isn't 100% penetrance. So there is some aspect of 
environmental influence or epigenetics that pushes the genetic load into actual frank illness. Um, but she got sick seven years. Her first time was seven years before I was born. And then when she got pregnant with me, she got she had peripartum depression, which again is often happens if you have a history of depression or bipolar depression and you get pregnant, the the, the stress, if you will, of pregnancy, and that has a bio, obviously has a significant biological stress, often pushes someone into peripartum depression. So she had all during her pregnancy and for about three months after her after she gave birth, she was significantly depressed and had ECT um, three or four months after giving birth to me. And it was it was transformative. I mean, I know ECT can have a bad name and a bad rap and one floor with a cuckoo's nest and Ken Casey didn't do any. <laughs> I mean, um, he, he wrote who were one floor with a cuckoo's nest. I mean, ECT isn't pretty, and especially then it was really not pretty um, because it it was kind of primitive back in the early '60s. But she had ECT, and it was it was transformative. She got better, and then again, in seven years after that, in her last bout of illness, she got sick again. When you say sick, how are you defining that? significantly depressed, significant suicidal ideation, um, and all the the sense of shame, the sense of worthlessness, the sense that I'm no good, um, the sense that you'd all be better off without me. Um, I think she was becoming psychotically depressed. I, I have a feeling, I don't know this for sure, but I have a feeling she was becoming psychotic where the voices start telling you you're bad and Start saying you're you're no good, and, and you, you know a good mother would do this, and why do you just the voices start happening? So that is also a piece of untreated bipolar depression or untreated depression. And so, well, when we're talking, about, there's two things I, I want to unpack. Uh, one, when we say ECT, we're talking about electroconvulsive therapy for the listeners who who don't yeah. know what ECT is. And uh, can you kind of explain uh, briefly what ECT is for those who aren't that familiar? Um, well, it there was the belief. It started, I believe, with in like probably the early part of the 20th century that people who had epilepsy and had convulsive seizures didn't have mental illness or had less mental illness. And that was an observation, whether it was any validity to it or not, is something else again. And so there was the sense that maybe convulsions were somehow protective against mental illness. So there was the practice Again, this is the early part of the 20th century of giving people, I think, camphor or, or some cost, some agent that would cause a seizure. And 
there were reports of people getting totally cured of, of all kinds of things by it. And I I don't know that how much of it was just sort of wishful thinking on the part of the people that were administering these drugs or whatever. But then, um, I forget the, not the researcher's name, but a Hungarian researcher started using electricity to generate a seizure. And then they started noticing and recognizing that with very, very severe depressions and sometimes with psychotic illnesses, people were better. So they would administer electricity to both sides of the brain, um, which would cause a, 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 a violent seizure. It was so violent sometimes, and, and the contracture of muscles during these seizures, because all the, the brain would, would release a lot of neurotransmitters, muscles would contract, sometimes powerfully enough to crush uh, the, the spinal vertebrae. So you could, I mean, you could, it was, or, or break your jaw because your your mouth your 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 mouth would clench, so it was pretty ugly. Um, and indeed, my mother got ECT bilateral, so you really have significant memory impairment, as well as potentially broken bones. Um, and that's changed dramatically since then. It's still. It, an electrical current that causes a seizure, but it's unilateral. It's just on one side. So the, the loss of memory isn't so bad. A muscle relaxant is given so you're not having this tonic-clonic, you know, full-body seizure where muscles contract violently and sometimes break bones. Um, and again, for reasons that are not entirely clear, although there's a massive release of glutamate, so that might be part of it. Glutamate is one of the main um, neurotransmitters, uh, stimulate, st stimulating neurotransmitters. and It's the most common neurotransmitter and it's a stimulating neurotransmitter. So that the glutamate gets released and people get better. I mean, I have prescribed ECT when I felt there was you know, with, with patients, obviously, um, when I felt it was necessary and that suicidal ideation, it was just getting too dangerous and medications weren't working or it was taking too long. They remained suicidal. I was, you know, very afraid that they would kill themselves. And ECT, it works. I mean, not for everyone, but often enough that there are definitely ind indications for it. And she had it in... The early 1960s, shortly after my birth and after her pregnancy, and she, it was miraculous. It was life-saving. I mean, for six and a, and a half years, she was fine. Did she have any other uh, health issues like chronic pain or anything? No, no. She was, she was an athlete, um, and, and not that athletes don't get. <laughs> health issues, but she, she was an athlete. She was very fit. She, um, she was quite healthy, um, except for bipolar depression. Um, so there was, there was no, you know, it's not like, you know, she had some terminal illness that, well, you know, where you say, well, 
you know, you're in chronic pain. It's, I understand it. it. There's nothing like that. Um, and, and the other thing that happens, and I, I don't, I, I, it, whether it's in, it, I think it's it surrounds suicide, is that when someone in a family commits suicide, there's huge amounts of guilt and shame and a sense of personal failure. And then there's silence that's as solid as Omerta in Cosa Nostra or in the Mafia, where it's like, you just don't talk about it. You, nobody talks about it. It's as if that person either just died and somehow just was lifted off the face of the earth or that they never existed. But there's total code of silence. And it's not, it's not a mafia code of silence, but it's like everybody, no one talks about it. And that was certainly true for my father. And it became true for everyone in the family because we sort of followed his lead, or at least my sisters did. They were older. And I was sort of left struggling because it was clear that I didn't have anyone to explain what had happened. Um, and whenever I asked, it was, it was kind of just, I was soothed, but I wasn't, nothing was explained. And, and the, the soothing wasn't actually comforting because it, it left the question that I came in with unanswered, which well, is always. I, yeah. I would imagine, I mean, that would be painful uh, and lonely on some levels, especially I'm thinking about going back to your mom, if she's struggling with uh, bipolar depression and you have a household where there's a code of silence where we don't talk about or discuss things, uh, I would imagine then there may not have been an outlet for your mom to express herself or to express her struggles or her pain. Well, I, I think part of the thing with bipolar, with, with severe but or even moderately severe, but depression is that usually the answer to why am I feeling bad is because I am a bad human being. I, I don't deserve to live. There's nothing good about me. I am an embarrassment to my friends. I'm an embarrassment to my coworkers. I'm embarrassed. I'm a bad mother. I'm a bad father. I'm, a, I'm just bad. And that, sense of failure and shame and our hand in glove and shame is very much a part of depression and it's not just a part of depression in that you psychologically feel ashamed the biology of shame and the biology of depression overlap so the parts of the brain that you feel that one feels when you're ashamed are very similar to the parts of the brain of the brain that you feel when you're depressed and and some of this research has been done with with mice and you can say well how does how, how do you know a mouse is depressed well the, the, the depressed mice give up earlier than sooner than non-depressed mice and Mice that are the alpha mouse. Well, it's 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 better with wolves. 
that there's there's the alpha wolf in a pack, and many mammals have alpha and beta, and the alpha male or the alpha female um, spread their genes better. They they have more sex, they procreate more, so their genes are more likely to survive. And that's the good thing about being the alpha is that you have a lot of you procreate you you have a lot of intercourse and procreate a lot, and, and your genes will probably survive better than the than the beta or the non-dominant. Um, and so there's usually a, at a certain point in time, adolescent wolves will challenge the alpha because they would like to procreate their genes. So they will often challenge the alpha. And if, he, and if it becomes clear that if I keep, if I challenge, if I go through with this challenge, I'm the, the adolescent, and I go through with this challenge, I'm going to die. This, 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 this alpha is going to kill me. I quickly change my behavior. And that, the physiognomy, the, the, the wolf's ears go down, its teeth withdraw back in its, in its muzzle. Um, it, it it hunkers down, it becomes physically small. The hair doesn't stand up anymore. It, it, everything get is to is to look small and non-threatening to the alpha. That part of the brain that signif that 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 controls the submissive behavior of the non-dominant wolf is the same part of the brain that lights up in us when we're feeling ashamed of something that we've, I don't know, failed an exam or done something stupid or whatever it is, or responsible for some bad outcome. And I feel ashamed. That part of the brain is the same as what happens in the wolf when it when it decides, or it's not a decision, it's a biological instinct to become small and non-aggressive. And and as pathetic as possible. And so there's a powerful biology of shame that's been studied. And that piece of depression, that, that part of shame is very painful. I mean, I mean, it really feels, I don't know if you've ever felt deep shame, but if you have, and I certainly have, it, it's painful. I mean, it's not like my finger hurts, but it's like I hurt and I can't really localize it. And you become, I don't want to live anymore. It's its a very suicidal kind of feeling. And it's also, it, it, this is, I'm going on with neuroscience here, but it's very much tied up with if if you cut yourself, you have pain. You you, you oh my god, that hurt! It, it's quick. It it gets to your brain very quickly, and you pull your hand away or whatever it was from the nail, and oh that hurts. And then you tend to it, and usually the pain sort of subsides. However, if you cut yourself, and the wound doesn't heal, and it starts to infect, and it it festers and it pustules, and you get a fever. That's a different kind of pain that pain also goes to that same place where the wolf is backing down or when we feel shame. It's the same 
uh, anterior insular and, and, uh, and posterior um, cingulate part of the brain. It's, 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 it's the same loci in the brain where sickness pain goes, where shame goes, and where depression goes. So there's an evolutionary aspect to this, but there, there, it hurts and you feel miserable and you feel worthless. And death is like, well, maybe that's not so bad after all, because life, because I am so miserable. And there's an evolutionary reason, I think, why that happened and why depression can be so dangerous in terms of suicide and why shame can be so dangerous in terms of suicide. Um, you mentioned that you experienced that level of shame and pain where it's not just my finger hurts, I hurt, my body hurts, and I don't want to be here anymore if this is going to be the experience. How did you navigate your way through that? Um, well, again, I have, I mean, my whole adolescence and early 20s was a mess. <laughs> I mean, it, it was a mess. And it was partly because my mother's suicide destroyed my story of who I was when I was seven. And I was kind of left with the story in shambles, the story in ruins. I just, I had had a great childhood, I thought. I mean, I did. And then suddenly it it was detonated. It just it blew up, and I, and I didn't know who I was. And so my, especially my late teens and my early twenties were spent not knowing who I was and trying to get my mother, in some strange way, to answer me why she had done what she had done. I mean. Despite the fact that she'd been dead for 15 years or longer, I still was wanting an answer from her. So there was a lot of, I, I never became frankly suicidal, but I, 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 would, I was parasuicidal. And I think adolescents, a lot of adolescents take risks. And, you know, it's part of getting through adolescence is surviving the risks that you take. And God willing, you don't push the risk taking too far. You don't drive too fast, you don't drink too much, you don't take too many street drugs without knowing what's really you're taking. You don't just challenge the fates too often. Um, and I did all that and got through it. And so I sort of had a history of parasuicidal behavior. And when I would feel shame, I would that they would all come back of like, I might just as well kill myself. And I I sort of was at the point where I didn't want to do that anymore. And so I would just get away from open windows. And, you know, I think if I'd been a soldier or a cop with access to firearms, I think that would have been, I mean, I think Russian roulette would have been something I would have played, but I didn't because I didn't have access, but, you know, I, I, I was afraid of, I was afraid of firearms because it, it's access to lethal arms is, 
I mean, it's, it's a reason why soldiers have high suicide rates. Not because they're traumatized, it's because they have access to, to firearms. Um, and there's a reason why doctors have a fairly high suicide rate. It's because we have access to morphine or whatever, you know, just go in the locked cabinet and take it out. Um, and so I, I got through those periods in part by st staying away from open windows um, and I, I I knew people to call on. I, I knew that when I, I that I was in a bad place, and I had friends or lo lovers or whatever who I could call on to to just say I need help. I'm in a bad place because it goes away. That's the thing about sickness, pain. Well, usually anyway, or shame. I mean, it's 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 not as if it was, you know, if you run over a six-year-old and and you were a little bit drunk and speeding, it's like I don't know. That's like a level of guilt and shame. I, I don't exactly know how to get past that one, but it's it's when it's like a little bit crazy when it's like stop it. This is not. You didn't do anything bad. I mean, get over it. It was more like I just needed time to to get over it, and then it was okay. I I don't know. I don't know quite how to answer if you've actually done something really bad, and therefore the shame is like, well, <laughs> you were drunk and you were driving too fast. I mean, I don't know how you get past that exactly. Um, that requires a different level of hugging. <laughs> Um, and it might never cure it. You, you mentioned putting space between yourself and uh, any lethal means. Uh, you also mentioned calling people, whether it was friends or lovers, and saying, hey, I need help. I'm in a bad space. I, I think there's a lot of people who want to make that phone call, and the phone just feels like it's 10,000 pounds at that moment. Um, I, how do you help people? What was your mindset in terms of I, I'm going to call and I need to call? And uh, and what were your friends saying to you? Because sometimes you can call a friend and it can say something that makes the pain worse. So how did your friends show you support once you did call? That um, you found that was beneficial? I, I think you have to, first of all, know who to call. And I think the friends have to really know you. And know, um, be strong enough in your life and strong enough themselves that they can just overrule your sense of reality. Because your sense of reality, when you're in shame, your sense of reality is, if not 180 degrees, maybe 160 degrees off. It's it's violently off that you really misperceive and misjudge what's going on and you've got to get past it and your friend needs to know that about you and somewhere that has to be in you it, it's not going to be conscious if, if it were conscious I wouldn't need anyone to help me through it but 
there's um, there's there's a Greek myth uh, that Sophocles wrote of, of, about Ajax, and Ajax was a Greek, a very uh, famous, illustrious Greek warrior, and I mean there are different stories of Ajax, but he he did something that that you I mean he was like like a phenomenal warrior like like Achilles or Hector or just he was myth well he was mythic I mean literally he was mythic but um, and he there are different versions of the story but whatever he did he did something that he felt humiliated by and the general in charge of his platoon told one of the soldiers do not leave Ajax alone at night. Just, we've got to get him to, to dawn. Do not let him be alone. And of course, the soldier fell asleep. Ajax saw he was asleep, took the soldier's sword, planted it in the earth, and just fell on his on the sword and killed himself out of shame. And I think the Greek, Sophocles, understood that had Ajax made it till the dawn, he probably would have seen that, yeah, this was I, it was stupid, but the hell with it. I can get over this, and I was I'm a great warrior, and I, this is ridiculous to kill myself over this. But he had to make it till, I mean, the, the metaphor of till, till light shone on the situation, so he could see it more clearly and get over it. I think I was in that league. I mean, not of Ajax, but of I needed some light on the situation. And I could get past it. That what I did or felt, it didn't have the kind of justification that I attributed to it. That that part of my brain that is operative in the in the adolescent wolf when he's sub, being submissive, or when you're feeling that sickness pain, when the other parts of the brain start kicking back in, it's like, yeah, well, come on, get over it, kid. And you can get over it, but you've got to get to the dawn, whatever that dawn is. And I think Sophocles' sense in, in, in the play of don't let this man be alone overnight, don't let him have lethal means, was, I mean, damn, this is like 400 BC or whatever he wrote the damn thing. I mean, he understood something about human behavior. And I think that is true of sometimes it's 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 true of shame. I mean, again, it's a high suicide rate in shame, but it's also true in 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 bad depression, where that part of the brain is what is taking over your thinking, where you feel I'm not worth living. And, and it's just that in shame, it's usually comes on quickly and then goes away. But in depression, it comes on sometimes quickly and then it doesn't go away. It stays and stays and stays. And the person, the depression just builds and builds and builds until sometimes it gets psychotic and sometimes it becomes suicide. And in my mother, it just built and built. Because I, again, I did find i mean it was years later and it's a another story but i did find her suicide note my, my sister had had it and it was like this is ridiculous 
I'm a bad mother. I'm a bad wife. I don't make anybody happy. I make everybody depressed. I make everyone miserable. No, no one, everyone else sees I'm terrible. I'm a bad, I'm a bad mother. I mean, it was like fill of all these statements of how terrible she was. And no one felt that way about her, except she felt that way about herself. And as far as she was concerned, it, it was written in stone and everyone could see how bad she was and she could see how bad she was. So why should she live? And she, and she didn't. Your book, Life After Death, um, first of all, is the title of one of my favorite Biggie albums. Uh, <laughs> what is it that you're hoping that readers will get from it? Uh, well, two questions, I guess. One is, what compelled you to write the story now? Uh, because how old were you when you found your mom? Seven years, two months, and two days. And And how old are you now? Or what age range? <laughs> uh, I, uh, I sixty is so far in the rearview mirror. I feel, yeah, terrible saying that. So, so what's compelled you to to share the story now? Um, in a written form, at least. Yeah, I I tried. I mean, I I am also a playwright. I've tried. All my plays had irreconcilable loss in them and I kept trying to sort of work through this in some slightly off dead center way of writing about it or staging it um, and I kept feeling that I not that I failed but I just didn't hit it I didn't get it and the other, so there was that, that I just didn't feel the plays and writing, writing, you know, 15 degrees off of the, my target was working. I needed, I needed to address the target directly. Um, and the other thing was, and this, that pretty much every character that was of significance in my story has died. I mean, has, it's no longer alive because everyone was pretty much significantly older than me. And there were things I said about my father. There are things I say about my stepmother that aren't the total truth about who they are to me. But I didn't want, I didn't need to sort of, I mean, there are aspects of my stepmother that were kind of terrific, but there were more aspects of her that she was more of a caricature of a woman than than a strong woman. My mother was a strong woman, and I think my father needed to deny, again, it was part of his omerta, it was part of his silence, it was part of his denial that he married this woman who he married. And I resented her and had a terrible difficulty with bringing her, allowing her into the household, into, into the family. And so, and I just didn't want to have to soft pedal that. And as long as she was alive, I didn't feel comfortable 
fully expressing what I really felt towards her because it would it would have hurt her badly, and I didn't really want to do that. Um, but I did want to say what I thought her presence, why she was in the family, and why my father married her fairly soon after my mother's suicide. Um, and so things like that, it, I just, I needed the freedom to write. And I would have felt guilty and I would have, I would have pulled punches and I didn't, I didn't want to pull punches. Fair enough. Uh, is there anything else you, you want to share? I have two more questions, but I, if there, is there anything else from your story that we haven't talked about that you think would be of value to well, someone who. Yeah, I think the other aspect of the, the book is called Life After Death, Surviving Suicide. So surviving. The book is really not about suicide. It's really about surviving. And it's really and it's really also most importantly for me, it's not about story getting crushed, which my story was crushed. It's about rebuilding story. And I strongly believe as a neuroscientist that trauma crushes story biologically as well as psychologically when you have suffered through overwhelming trauma not you know not breaking an arm but overwhelming trauma where you feel it's only with luck that you survive and, and have a day after this um, your story gets crushed. And what I address in the book and in my life was the struggle to, to recreate one's story, biologically as well as narratively. And I think that's what the book is about. So it's not really about suicide. It's really about surviving and finding a way to recreate your story after it's been destroyed. Um, and I think that's what I do as a doctor. And that's what I did, you know, of the, and it took me like more than 20 years, but however many years it was, I don't know how many years it was, to sort of reposition my story in such a way that I could let my mother go. And I think that's the other thing that this, writing this book did for me was I released her. I think I kept her prisoner for decades after she was dead. And obviously it's, I didn't have a, a box that I put her in and kept her in, but I imprisoned her soul for many, many years in my mind. And at a certain point in the writing, and I sort of know exactly where it was in the book, but where I just let her go. And it was, it was huge for me. And I think specifically for those readers who might be dealing with someone else's suicide, it's letting that person's soul go is, 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 a, is a moment of catharsis. Um, and you've got one had to get that to that point. Um, Last two questions. I always imagine there's one person listening in who may be on the precipice of wanting to end their life. Before you kill yourself, what would you say to them? Um, that 
the parts of the brain that control depression um, control can be rest, wrestled back to the prefrontal cortex, which you mentioned early on. And um, there are any number of different ways that it can get back to the prefrontal cortex. Some of them psychological, like knowing a good friend to call, but some of them biological. Sometimes, like with my mother, there it's really a biological action that has to occur to free the control of one central nervous system from that part that is, if allowed to stay in control, dooms you. But it can be liberated from that part. And again, sometimes it's biological and sometimes you need either that, sometimes the help of a really good friend, but sometimes when it's truly biological from the help of a good doctor. Um, and what are you looking forward to in the next 24 hours? Huh. Uh, Twenty-four. Um, well, I'm sort of. Well, one thing I would look really love to have in the next four, twenty-four hours is a good review from the New York Times, but I'm not sure it's going to happen in the next twenty-four hours. Um, if any of your reviewers are work for newspapers, that they would call me and say, send me a copy of the book, and I'll review it for my newspaper. Um, it's it, but the book is recently out, so look, we're looking for reviews. Uh, uh, or if someone else is doing a podcast, that they will call me because I love doing these podcasts. These are great, and I'm um, I think I'm also circling the idea for my next writing project. So I'm creeping up on what I think that will be. It's been sort of circle in the airport if you will for a while now i think i'm i think i'm close to it right on well dr brockman thank you for joining us thank you listeners for tuning in remember this podcast is not a substitute to get help to call the 988 or any of the international phone numbers that are listed in all of the show notes no matter where you are in the world if you're in budapest new zealand germany or detroit you can call chat text you can go to thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one -on -one coaching with yours truly. Let's get to tomorrow together. Thank you so much, Dr. Brockman. Thank you, Leo.